Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 130 of the podcast. Today I'll be talking with Aaron Clausette, professor of computer science at the University of Colorado at Boulder and in the BioFrontiers Institute. Aaron is also external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute. Science would appear to be straightforward to do, and also straightforward to manage other people who do. I mean, all the challenge of science must be in the knowledge and in the know-how. It must be in the expensive equipment and in the complicated apparatuses. It must be in the exploration, the experimentation, and the examination of results. Because... As to the people doing these things, or using these tools, well, it would just appear, wouldn't it, that some matters are really kind of obvious. For example, put more money into the research, and you will reap better returns on the findings. Or for any groundbreaking line of the research, just build a larger team, fill the team with all-star scientists, and watch as the knowledge is gained and the application scenarios multiply. And it would just appear to be the case, wouldn't it, that any good idea in the research will rise into view, no matter where the idea came from, no matter who had the idea, no matter which appearance the idea took in the eyes of other scientists. Because really, isn't that the distinguishing trait of the scientist? Isn't that the distinguishing feature, too, of the whole scientific pursuit of truth? That is, the trust in the method? the acceptance of results on one count and one count only, accuracy. Or is science not our modern endeavor to base our labor of knowing on rationality, on objectivity, and on testability? Well, of course it is. Science is all of those good things, and yes, science does indeed go in a direction of recognizably having moved forward. However, And the whole content of this interview really is contained in this contrastive statement, so I'll say it again. However, science is a pursuit by us humans. And the honest fact here is that we understand this pursuit itself, this practice of and this organization of the effort to do scientific work. We understand that only as well as we understand every scientist's object of inquiry. Whether that scientist inquires into objects of a biological nature, of a material nature, or of an electronic computing nature. Basically, what I'm trying to say here is that the practice of science is itself deserving of measurement, and it is deserving of reflection. Science can, too, be an object of inquiry, from the perspective of history, or of sociology, or of information science. Because, in truth, it never really is obvious just why one research group outperformed the next in the impact of their work, nor is it obvious why one scientific paper outdoes the next in the impact of its citation measures, nor even is it obvious why one funding decision has this better effect on the research impact than does that other funded decision. In short, the sense that 
all the challenge of science is in the scientific content itself, well, that sense just does not really hold in practice. The doing of the science is as complex as the things the science is done upon. And this is so for at least two reasons, the one relating to the people who do the research, and the other relating to the ideas these people have in or for the research. So, to the first reason, science is done by people. Yes, science is a set of modern methodologies for thinking and finding out, but no, these methodologies cannot remove the human from the equation. That's why it does normally matter where a new idea emanates from, and also why it can make all the difference if a team have long experience working together, or only very little experience working together, or also who the team is comprised by, whether exclusively superstar scientists, or mostly early career researchers, or more likely any of the possible mixes between these extremes. It changes scientific outcomes when an institute adheres to the one hiring policy or the other, and there are certain hiring practices which probably no one at any institute even notice as their own practice because that is just supposedly how hiring is done in science. In other words, a lot of the actual work in the researching, and also a lot of the work done to enable that researching, a lot of all of that plays a very big and normally unintuitive role in which actual results are obtained and in which actual interpretations are made of those results. Perhaps just to illustrate from my own background in helping scientists write, let me just show here how the same content can change effect merely by the formulation of methods and results in a title. For example, here is a fictive title from the field of security and machine learning using step-level explanation to overcome the limitations of deep reinforcement learning. This title is vague, which limitations, how overcome, and it is uninformative because it presents research activities, step-level explanation, instead of research outcomes. Now here is the real title, as published in a top venue in the field, AIRS, AIRS. Explanation for Deep Reinforcement Learning-Based Security Applications. Now, this title tells a computer scientist who is searching the literature what the paper is about. It's about explanation, and where in deep reinforcement learning, and why for security application purposes. And on top of that, the scientist knows too how to name this framework that the authors have built, AIRS as. All that difference lies not in what the scientists have done, but in how the scientists have communicated what they've done. Again, we are at the level of the practice of science, and again we notice none of this is obvious. Now, I have a second reason here for what makes scientific work so complex, and that is the ideas of the research. Ideas are themselves complex, just inside the science. But when those ideas are released into a community of researchers, or as is more normally the case, into many communities of researchers, and through time, well, then very many factors work upon those ideas, upon the circulation of the ideas, upon the uptake and extension of the ideas, upon the trial, the rejection, and modification of the ideas, so that in the end it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to tease out just whose contributions and precisely which work 
have made any one idea into new knowledge or actionable scientific understanding. Actually, in the final assessment, this network view of the ideas of science is really just one version of the network view of the scientists themselves, because it is the scientists who set the ideas going and who do or do not spread those ideas. In any case, ideas are clearly the products of humans. Probably the major reason why we need not fear artificial intelligence, since it takes genuine intelligence to generate scientific ideas. But ideas are also handled by humans, and that is why it makes some sense for sure to view the two, if I may, causes of science separately, the people themselves and their ideas or thinking. For instance, once an idea has been made into the shape of a scientific paper, it really does exist independently of the idea originators, of the author researchers. That is, the way the idea has been communicated, the venue the idea has been communicated in, the other ideas which this one has been explained in reference to or against, any number of variables and factors come together here to make one seemingly straightforward matter like a single idea in science into just one node in a complex system of systems. So, if we say that science investigates nature, as nature is and as nature does, well then it is equally true to say that science is itself a part of nature and so can be turned in upon itself to investigate how it is and how it does. And that is precisely the object of science of science, to investigate the human thinking and the human action behind the pursuit of scientific truth. Findings from the science of science make visible and ever more transparent the workings of such fundamental activities in science as collaboration, leadership, inquiry, discovery, and publication. The knowledge emanating from science of science work can help funders make better funding decisions, can help universities make better hiring decisions, can help administrators make better management decisions, and can help the scientists themselves make better decisions on the writing of the science, on the reading of the science, on the mentoring of the science, and on the leading of researchers in science. In sum, to quote my guest today, Aaron Clausette, and of course his co-authors, the emerging field of the science of science aims to develop a causal understanding of the social drivers of scientific discovery, which will improve the evaluation of and investment in good science. My guest today, Aaron Clausette, leads a research group who focus on these two areas of work in the science of science. First, the large-scale organization of complex networks, so for example, faculty hiring networks in academia, and second, the mechanisms that shape the networks which form by the scientific work. So, for example, the mechanism of prestige. So, let's begin today's episode. Aaron Clauset and the networks where faculty do science. Hi, Aaron. Welcome to Scholarly Communication. Hi, Daniel. It's great to be here. One of the interesting things about science of science is that it's extremely useful, the findings that are taken from it, um, but it is itself also equally a science. So, I mean, theoretically and practically, you could apply science of science to the science of science. <laughs> um, I suppose what I'm driving at is where science of science situates along that sort of classic 
basic applied um, divide that very many people make in the research? The science of science is a very interesting field because it's inherently interdisciplinary and its history reflects that. The, the first people interested in the idea of using the scientific method, as it's sometimes called, or the approach of scientists to understand what scientists do and what knowledge they produce and how they do it, uh, first began in the 1800s. And then it was very much, um, you know, sociologists and philosophers thinking about like, what is science and what is scientific knowledge? And the, over the course of the, of, the, of the next almost 200 years, the science of science has developed and cohered and, and, and become much more quantitative. Um, data, of course, is much more prevalent today. And so it really looks like a combination of social science and uh, mathematics and computational science, along with uh, questions about policy uh, and natural scientists have gotten involved as well. And so in the community that we have today who, who work on ideas related to the science of science, almost every field of study is contributing in part because uh, we all want to know how to do science better. And the science of science is essentially how we can do that. I think one of the things that really jumps out at me when I read these science of science studies is that very clever devising has gone into figuring out how to use in the current studies now, as you've just said, sort of the turn to data, very clever ways have been devised to really figure out, okay, how can we use this data to answer the sorts of questions that we really want to know? And even perhaps question answers that have been given before. I mean, one good example comes up in some of the articles that we'll be talking about um, later in the interview, where you have on the one hand, sort of an averaged over picture where it looks like very many scientists uh, have a decline in their productivity over the course of their career. But when you zoom in and when you know how to zoom in with the data, you see a very different set of results. That's right. And the data revolution of the past 20 years, especially, has really transformed many different fields of study. But the social sciences have benefited um, tremendously, in part because now we have quantitative information about outcomes of social processes. And science, of course, is one of those. And before that, we had to rely on very small data sets that were very hard to collect by hand, or even just personal experience. And if there's one thing true about sort of the modern endeavor of the scientific community is that it is incredibly large and diverse. And so as a result, these small scale studies or personal experiences turned out not to be very representative of the sort of global dynamics of this thriving, vibrant community. Um, and so the data really allows us to do good science. And you're right that the cleverness and the design is in part because it's, it's kind of tricky to conceive of doing randomized controlled experiments with science. Um, what's, what's the control and what's the, the treatment group? Um, in many cases, that would be unethical or impractical to do. You can't randomize discoveries across scientists. Um, but there are very clever approaches that have come out in part from the field of computational social science, which um, draws on ideas from statistics and machine learning and causal inference in order to, to understand how much information can we squeeze from observational data, sort of just watching at scale what scientists do um, from the different data perspectives and trying to extract as much insight as possible about the causal processes underneath that lead to faster discoveries or more discoveries or different discoveries in different fields. 
And this, this again, sort of brings me back to, to that opening question of, so the usefulness of science of science, it, I, I can imagine that, uh, and I've seen this happen, and in my own line of work, I help scientists write. So uh, for me, it's also true that you can really scoop up these results and start to really try to apply them in ways. Yeah, What, what creates more citations? What um, sort of a group... Uh, um, let's say composition makes the difference and so on. I mean, these, these are things that scientists desperately actually want to know, but from the outside, it can very much look so outside of academia or, or the research world very much look like, well, arcane sorts of knowledge uh, are, are results whose, whose usefulness is not immediately apparent. Um, how, how can you perhaps uh, speak to that, that double view that people might have of it? Yeah, the science of science is, is an interesting field because it, it really has sort of two different constituent groups um, who are interested in these kinds of results. And one group, of course, is the scientists themselves. Like scientists want to know how to do better science um, and, of course, promote the ideas that they think are very interesting so that they receive the attention of their colleagues and to make progress on these important questions. But the other constituency is society. And society, I, I think, often sort of misses... Uh, uh, the value of like, why do we care about citation counts and publication counts and whether a paper is published in this journal or that journal? Like, isn't science just about like discovering facts and aren't all facts sort of like, you know, equivalent in terms of being factual? And, and so there's, I think, a disconnect um, between those two constituencies that, that the, the practice of the science of science, which is often very much about um, bibliographic data about the citation network and, and so on, um, that, that that's really kind of shop talk for scientists to understand how do we compete with each other to promote our scientific insights and the fields that we think deserve more attention and so on. Um, whereas the society is much more interested in discoveries themselves and whether or not um, a new field is going to produce uh, technologies or, or insights that will be beneficial to society, say, for instance, for, for understanding how public health works or disease or making transportation better or something like that. Um, dealing with climate change, of course. Um, and so society's interests are much more about the discovery side of the science of science, whereas the scientists often get sort of lost in the weeds of trying to understand, like, how can I make my particular science better? They're less interested in sort of the overall sort of systemic level of discovery and more interested in, well, I know what discoveries I'm trying to make, like, how do I make them better? And the science of science can speak to, to both of those groups. I think the system there though, that you mentioned at the end is quite interesting because if you sort of bring science of science back a bit to its sociological roots, even its philosophical roots, well, as you say, we're dealing with social processes here. It's a process that is happening only within a branch of society, but in today's world, an extremely important branch of society. So that, for example, inequalities in the way that science is done are going to be inequalities that are also present in society. And they will drastically affect these inequalities in science, will drastically affect the way that we know things. And the way that we know things shapes the way that society works. So, I mean, it has that roll-on effect, which is beyond just merely citation effect, um, counts. That's exactly right. And I like to think about these things in terms of an ecosystem metaphor now that that you know, 200 years ago, the way science was done, it was done by a very small group of people, most of whom knew each other. 
Um, and we were still trying to figure out a lot about how to measure things in the world. Like how do you, what, what, what is heat? What is temperature for instance in physics? And um, uh, now we, we've made a lot of progress of course, um, but science is so much more broad. And as you said, it's, it's sort of fundamental to the progress of our technological society. And um, uh, trying to understand uh, how, how that can be done better um, requires thinking about that social process. And so in the ecosystem, there are many different uh, sort of entities. There's people, there's universities, there's funding agencies, there's society, there's commercial companies who want to translate discoveries into products and so on, um, and journals and publishers and so on. And each of them has their own kind of perspective on the world, their own agenda, if you will, and they interact with each other. And so if you if you modify the way the system works in one place, the network of those interactions will lead to different dynamics that come out, different kinds of discoveries, who, who becomes a scientist will change, who gets promoted, who whose ideas get attention and so on. Um, and so the ecosystem is a nice metaphor because it really highlights the fact that there's a bunch of these independent agendas all interacting. Um, and the system is what produces the scientific discovery. So discoveries are in some sense an emergent property of the scientific ecosystem. But this is where these two additional concepts that I find to be very useful become really um, relevant. One is this notion of epistemic inefficiency, the idea that the production of knowledge um, is a mechanical process from the perspective of like it has to work a certain way and certain things have to happen and so on. And if you modify those things or if you don't have the right ingredients, then you don't get the discoveries. And so it being a mechanical process means that that it can be efficient, more efficient, less efficient, efficient in different ways and so on. How we allocate the structure, the way the ecosystem functions changes both the kind of discoveries that get made, who benefits from the discoveries, um, who makes the discoveries, where they're made, et cetera, et cetera. And so if we think about the ecosystem as producing scientific knowledge, we can conceive of this idea of epistemic inefficiency. Where are Where's the friction in the system that's slowing down discovery? And there are many epistemic inefficiencies that come from social biases. The fact that, as you said, society as a whole influences who gets to be a scientist and who where they get to be a scientist and so on. And those social biases, like, for instance, the participation of women in science or other underrepresented, other represented groups, um, uh, for instance, individuals in the global south are highly underrepresented in the global scientific community. These social biases uh, induce epistemic inefficiencies because plenty of research now shows that the more sort of minds you have working on a task and the more diverse perspectives you have attacking it, the quicker you are to come up with the most innovative ideas. And so if you reduce the diversity of the scientific community in terms of the ideas that they're entertaining and the perspectives that they're bringing to bear, then you'll be creating epistemic inefficiencies. And so in the science of science, you can often think about any particular aspect of the field as being either focused on understanding an epistemic inequality directly or focused on understanding a social bias. And this sort of this sort of classification scheme I find to be very useful to understand what's the value of this particular approach or this particular study in the science of science. I think it is a very great metaphor or picture to work with because when I work with scientists, I've worked with biologists, I've worked with, I am currently working with computer scientists to help them write and the sort of perennial 
term that gets thrown out again and again and that people are always thinking about is the community, the research community. And it has, in my opinion, a bit of a hollow ring to it at times. I don't think that especially early career researchers, maybe even up through you know the end of a postdoc um, stay, are really visualizing there what that community is and, and what that entails. Whereas your ecosystem metaphor here gives us Right. All these different groups living together. There's a system that brings them into interaction and there are outcomes because of the adjustment of one or the other thing. It's like out there in the real world in ecosystems, right? The, the, The death of one species can have drastic effects throughout the entire system. That's right. And if you are in the system as an individual, um, you may not understand or even be able to, to see how a different you know, biome and a different part of the ecosystem is, is working. And you may not really understand how its outcomes are influencing what's happening sort of down, downstream in your area of the ecosystem. And this is certainly true with say um, funding decisions. Uh, so a wonderful example of unexpected consequences um, for an intervention in the ecosystem in the U.S. in the late 90s and early 2000s, the National Institutes of Health um, had a doubling of its budget, and it was you know billions of dollars of new money. Um, it was um, approved by Congress in part because biomedical research is so fundamental to, to to progress in our society, and science is what what drives that forward. Um, and so, you know, giving more money to the National Institutes of Health seemed like an obvious win. And it should, of course, maybe produce twice as much science or just produce discoveries at twice the rate that you were were producing previously. Um, And it certainly did have many benefits, um, more discoveries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But it had a number of unexpected consequences as well. One of them was in a retrospective analysis of what happened to NIH researchers after that budget doubling went through um, was was that NIH funded researchers were spending less time doing research. And it's because they were spending more time writing grant proposals. Universities um, also built a lot of new medical buildings uh, in anticipation of them winning a share of this additional money. And they overbuilt. They built far more capacity than the money could have supported in the first place. And in order to sort of spin up to, to, to use all this new money that was pouring into the biomedical research community, um, uh, universities and hospitals especially um, emphasized uh, uh, soft money positions. So these are uh, researcher positions where uh, nearly 100% of their salary comes from grants. So they have to write grants, grant proposals continuously in order to fund their own research um, directly. They don't have, they don't get money from teaching the way I do, for instance, as a regular tenure track professor in computer science. Um, and so uh, in some sense, the, the system was very inefficient in the way that it used all this new money. And the idea that researchers were spending less time doing research because they were spending more time writing proposals to fund their salaries because that was the way that they were going to stay as a researcher. If they didn't do that, they would have to quit. Um, that, that is clearly not an efficient outcome. But it's also not something that you as an individual researcher have any say over. You know, The system does its stuff. Congress does its stuff. People make these decisions. Um, and then you just have to adapt. Uh, to the ecosystem, the way the ecosystem is changing, or else you have to leave. Yeah, and that, <laughs> I mean, lining up incentives so that people act in a way that, you know, for our ecosystem here or communities of, of scientific workers and so on, so that things actually turn out the way that we would hope them to. 
is yeah a devilish business to say the least i would say <laughs> but that's precisely what these this is yeah. why we need a science of science yeah, to that, understand. That's exactly where yeah. I was going with that. Right. <laughs> but, but but in 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 what extent as well? Because before we turn um, and and after this question, I really do want to turn to uh, two different lines of your own research. But um, perhaps one last thought, because this po- podcast is very much directed at early career researchers, and and one of the things that when I read Science of Science and try to also use it in my work that, that I start to realize is that this is really useful information for any researcher to know. And then I start to think, as I often do when I think of researchers, well, how could they be trained or helped to really appreciate that? Of course, any area of science requires so much training already now that adding on more is, yeah, challenging to say the least. But um I, I would prioritize this sort of knowledge, wouldn't you? Or, or, or what is your view there? I, I think that there's a lot of utility in the insights that come out of science of science. And you know, historically, the elite universities, the Ivy League and MIT and Stanford and the like, you know, they, the, the mentorship and the education that, that young researchers receive at those institutions included insights about these aspects of of the mechanical process of science and the structure of the ecosystem and, and how to excel and succeed. And that was a competitive advantage for those elite, um, educated young scientists. In some ways, the science of science is, is making that information available to everyone. And that's going to level the playing field to some degree, knowing, being able to read the literature in the science of science and, and understand something about like, how does scientific attention work? How do you get your ideas um, to be recognized more and to have more eyes look at them and there that will influence other scientists to then potentially follow on and build on your work. And that's the kind of stuff that the science of science is certainly teasing out. But the science of science is going one better, which is not just relying on the historical experience of the elites in terms of sort of dominating the system, but also using scientific principles and data to understand causality. And so I think that that it would be important for all doctoral training programs um, or postdoctoral training programs to include some amount of training um, about like how do you how do you be a successful scientist in the modern ecosystem, and that's a little bit different than what it was like for some of the most senior faculty forty years ago, um, when the ecosystem was not quite as competitive, for instance. Um, when there was a lot more money, for instance, going around for, for fellowships and so on, but also when it was much less diverse. Very much so. Yes. Um, let, let's give listeners a, perhaps a, a feel and a taste of what science of science uh, research can find out and what it also looks like. Um, for example, you've given me a few articles that follow a line of research that talks about career or individual productivity. And I'm just actually going to start us off with reading these three or four sentences here from the significance of one of the first studies, which was published in the PNAS. And that will give a sense as to what it is that you're finding. And we can go into then some of the details um, of of what the study actually showed. So the significance, um, I quote here from that article in the PNAS from 2017, is the following. Scholarly productivity impacts nearly every aspect of a researcher's career, from their initial placement as faculty to funding and tenure decisions. Historically, expectations for individuals rely on 60 years of research on aggregate trends, which suggests that productivity rises rapidly to an early career peak 
and then gradually declines. Here we show, using comprehensive data on the publication and employment histories of an entire field of research, that the canonical narrative of rapid rise, gradual decline, describes only about one-fifth of individual faculty, and the remaining four-fifths exhibit a rich diversity of productivity patterns. This suggests existing models and expectations for faculty productivity require revision, as they capture only one of many ways to have a successful career in science. So that is, that's, wow, <laughs> that's, that's exciting. I, th- I mean, I think if you were talking perhaps theoretically, but I think our listeners right now think, oh, okay, this, there's something here. Um, yeah. One of the co-authors, perhaps uh, you could give us a sense of what drove that study and what, what, what maybe also were some of the principal findings for you. This is a, a wonderful example of how data allows you to, to go deeper into the underlying dynamics to understand like what's really going on here. And so the 60 years of research that the significant statement refers to, it really is a long history of science of scientists, scientists of scientists of science of science, too many sciences there. Um, Researchers who are interested in these questions of productivity um, had looked at the average number of papers written by a scientist as a function of their age. And um, it was a very reliable pattern. Every field you looked in, you saw this, what came to be known as this canonical trajectory of a rapid rise to an early peak when you're fairly young, and then the slow and sort of steady decline um, as you age. And um, it's important to emphasize this is the average number of papers. So they take a large number of scientists in the early studies, it would be tens or hundreds, and they look at, they line them up by career age. So how many papers did you write in your first year? What's the average? How many in the second year? What's the average? And so on. And um, and this is the the idea, this narrative underlied the idea that um, old scientists are unproductive. And um, many years ago, there used to be mandatory retirement ages in the U.S., and those were ruled um, unconstitutional, I believe, uh, and gotten rid of. Uh, and um, But the idea of mandatory retirement ages was, well, you don't want an unproductive old fuddy-duddy um, who you know, costs a lot because they've been around a long time with lots of raises and a big salary, you should replace them with, say, two young scientists who are going to be, A, more productive and are going to be less expensive um, and maybe closer to the cutting edge. And so this this canonical narrative, this, this you know, looking at this average trajectory was saying, oh, the old scientists are not productive, that had driven real policy with real consequences for who got to be a scientist. And it also colors the idea that you know, young scientists are where all the fresh ideas come from and old scientists are just sort of, you know, milking their status for, for, uh, um, for whatever it is. And what we thought was, well, that's an average trajectory. What happens if you look at the individual trajectories? Do they all look like the average or do they show some diversity? And so this is a place where new data, detailed data on a much larger set of researchers, in this case, with the computer science, which is my field, um, we found that, in fact, the canonical narrative of a rapid rise to an early peak and then a slow decline uh, is not representative of the typical researcher's trajectory. And instead, as the significant statement says, only about 25% of researchers show that pattern. And the 75% that remain shows essentially all manner of other patterns, including a steady fall from the beginning of your career onward or a steady rise from the beginning of your career onward. And so you're even more productive every year that you go on, or some researchers show a bounce, you know, their productivity um, is stable or declining, and then it hits a turning point and then starts 
increasing again. And for us, what this told us was that the, the previous studies were really summarizing the data. They were describing the system in a particular way. And people interpreted that description as causal, that, that, that this description was destiny, that, that there's no way to be productive as an old scientist. And the papers in that field had also come up with, with explanations, causal explanations, like, oh, maybe it's something about young people are close to the forefront, and so they're close to the fertile ground of ideas, and so they write a bunch of papers, and then they don't continue to explore, and so then they just keep sort of writing about the same topics, which are now increasingly not on the forefront. Or maybe there's some sort of health-related thing that um, when you're young, you're healthy, you can work a lot. And as you get older, you have additional responsibilities, say you're teaching more, you're leading a department as a, as a chair or a dean, um, or maybe you have children, or maybe your, your physical health just starts declining and you can write less. Um, and, and these mechanisms were individual-level mechanisms, explanations, but about a population-scale pattern. And when we looked at the individual patterns, we found this enormous diversity. And that immediately tells you that, ah, scientists are far more interesting. Like the way science gets done is way more interesting than these old theories. And there's a series of follow-up papers that we did on this topic, trying to go deeper. Like the deeper we go, the more we understand here. And so we tried to go as deep as we could to try to understand what, what is it that actually drives this variance in productivity? And we found that, that there's a huge amount of variance and it comes from pretty much understandable factors. Like if you work in a field like computer science where we, um, a, a professor leads a research group and they, they co-author papers with their students um, in their research group, well, the larger your research group, the more papers you write. And so if your productivity is declining, it may be because your research group is shrinking. And that's not has, it doesn't have anything to do necessarily with how good your ideas are. It has to do with how much labor is available. Um, we also found, uh, and this is something that in the, in the business, we all sort of know and accept that uh, funding is a key part of productivity, that the wealthiest institutions receive the largest uh, number of dollars from in the US, the federal government for research that allows them to hire a lot more people, which allows those scientists to write that many more papers. And so now what we're beginning to see is that we understand that the mechanisms that are driving productivity a little bit better, and there's still some room for individual variation. Um, we find that even controlling for the size of a researcher's group, there is a little bit of an advantage in productivity that comes from just being at a more prestigious institution. And understanding what causes that is a very interesting question. Is it that they're teaching less, they have more administrative support, they have more collaborations with other colleagues. Maybe it's the culture. Maybe the culture is just more focused on research than at the lower prestige places. It's an interesting question to try to figure out what is the causal explanation there. And from the perspective of policy, it's actually really important to pin down what is the mechanism that drives more research in a particular direction because we want to target the policy towards like doing that. Otherwise, you're going to get the the mandatory retirement age type policy in which um, sort of an, an average perspective is believed to be true at the individual level. And then you, you mistarget your policy and you end up kicking out a lot of very productive older scientists just because they happen to be old. That, 
that gives us a, a nice run through that entire uh, line of research on the productivity. I'm, I'm going to sort of circle back and just pick out a few of the interesting details in, in the different papers that, that represent uh, those findings that you've given us there. Um, and also draw a little bit of attention to the way that science is science is done, because I think that that's going to be interesting to some of our listeners as well. I mean, you've mentioned already that it's an interdisciplinary field, and we've mentioned already that it's about taking large sets of data, but also using them well. Um, another thing that really jumps out at me when I look at science of science work is the techniques for visualization, the techniques for preparing, analyzing, and, and demonstrating the data. Um, that first paper that I mentioned uh, before has, has, in my opinion, a great example of that, the misleading narrative paper, where you sketched out in the air for us these different four trajectories that a productive career or less productive career might take. And of course, we're on a podcast, so this is hard to do. But I'm looking right now <laughs> at figure four in that particular paper. And it's wonderful the way that we see here four quadrants with the two axes, all of the plots, but then that is interpreted in two further forms so that we really sort of get a sense of the significance of this, let's say, messy data in the center. We've got on the one hand, four different um, charts showing us developments, years post-hire. That's the one sort of major variable with publication counts, of course. And then we've got a bar graph on the other side, sort of bringing all of this together, summing it up so that we can really get a sense of, ah, okay, so this is the relation and this is where it would stand and these are the percentages. Um, with that example in mind or any other, could you as a researcher in science of science also speak to this idea of analyzing results and also preparing them in ways that make them readable? I think that the science of science, because it's an interdisciplinary field and a field with these two different constituents, you know, scientist as a group and also society, but even the scientist constituent group is incredibly diverse. And, you know, a trained biologist understands, you know, a set of technical ideas and laboratory methods and maybe computational techniques. And those are going to be different from the kind that, say, a machine learner or even a physicist would know. And so if the science of science is going to actually like help the scientists and society understand the scientific ecosystem better to really go beyond just describing it and understanding like how it works, the, me the mechanics of it, like clear visualizations and targeted, very specific analyses that relate back to practical concrete things. That's really key for the science communication part of it. That if you want the, the work to have an impact on the constituents, the, the, the groups that are most interested in these kinds of results, then it's important, I think, to, to try to go that extra step to figure out like what is an analysis that is, as you mentioned, you know, clever and, and maybe judicious in its use of the data, but also targeted in a way that, that matters. And one nice thing about publication counts is that they're easy to measure. Um, <laughs> and because they get used in many real decisions in terms of promotion and hiring and so on, um, it's very concrete and so very accessible. Whereas in some of the work on, say, bibliometric analyses, where you're looking at citation graphs and co-citations and counts and things, that's kind of more abstract and it's a little bit less clear to see how does that relate to the discovery process or the social process of science. 
So thinking about both, you know, how to make the analyses tie back to something that's concrete and accessible, um, and also trying to communicate clearly to as, as broad an audience as possible the relevance of these results. I, I think those really help the science of science um, accomplish its goals. I'm going to stay with visuals. <laughs> I don't Great. know why. I mean, <laughs> this, re this really isn't what I should be doing, but I will. Um, the there, There's also so many interesting, I would call them tidbits, but that's uh, that's not the right way of putting it. So many interesting facts that arise out of the data, um, which which contribute to the overall argument. I'm still continuing to think about this, uh, this misleading narrative paper. Um, but which stand for themselves as, as interesting um, findings. So, for example, um, you mention in the paper that approximately half of all the contributions in that data set on computer scientists were authored only by 20% of all faculty. And, I mean, when I think many scientists and in, in, in computer science would read this, I, I mean, certainly more senior scientists would be, like, nodding their heads. I think very many early career scientists would be, shocked <laughs> and uh, and what what that also reminds me of another science of science publication by Dashun Wang and Alberto uh, Barabashi the, the science of science the book <laughs> um, they, they give a visual there of the the paper mountain so across all fields where if you stack up all the first pages of uh, the published record, essentially, you end up with something that in the first top two meters has the bulk of the citations. So, I mean, we clearly see a pattern going on here of productivity and impact being in a very small region. Yeah, there's a lot of inequalities um, and disparities in, in science. And as the examples you gave uh, sort of highlight, some scientists are incredibly productive and incredibly uh, impactful in the sense that they receive a huge, a disproportionate share of attention from other scientists. I, I think of citations as being attention. Um, so a paper with a large citation count means that many other scientists are attending to that paper. And it's not like citations mean something else as well, but as a crude measure, they're mostly about like who's paying attention to, to what papers and what ideas. And so the question of like, why do we have such huge disparity and inequality among scientists is, I think, very interesting. And this comes back to the question of trying to understand the, the mechanisms, because we can describe these disparities, but whether or not they're good or bad is a separate question. And I think this is sometimes kind of a, a difficult thing to wrestle with as a young scientist, because when you're just starting off, you, you don't have a large track record and you're not very well cited. People aren't paying attention to your work very much. Um, and so it can feel like a sort of an insurmountable barrier to, you know, become one of those high impact or highly productive scientists. Um, but for many young scientists, that will happen. I mean, the people who are highly cited and highly productive today once were young scientists as well. But the science of science can help us understand what are the factors that drive those disparities. And that's where we start to understand sort of the, the ecosystem and the way it allocates attention in ways that might be inefficient or biased, for instance. And um, there's been a large and increasing amount of work focused on the bias aspect to understand whether or not women um, write as many papers as men, um, whether they receive as many citations as men, are they receiving as much attention and so on? Um, do they Are they as competitive with men in terms of job placement or PhD completion in terms of where they get their PhDs and so on? And 
this is a very vibrant field and I'm really excited about many of the new analyses coming out in part because they're getting closer to the mechanisms. They're going deeper and therefore understanding more. And um, so by sort of pulling apart the ecosystem to understand how is it that it produces these inequalities, like some scientists are much more productive than others, we can then begin to understand, well, how much of it is because of talent versus environmental effects? And coming back to the productivity line of work in my research group, um, this was one of the motivations was to understand, like in computer science, the researchers at the most elite universities write you know, two or three times more papers in the first 10 years of their career than the scientists, computer scientists at the least elite universities in the U.S. So like, are the ones at the elite universities just like, you know, more talented or smarter or harder working? And by going deeper and understanding the mechanism, we, we discovered that a large fraction of that disparity is just about labor, that the elite scientists have more people in their lab and therefore they write more papers. And of course, if you're contributing more units of information to a conversation, that will also skew where the attention goes. And so the productivity disparity, which is driven by a, a resource disparity, if you will, then creates or drives an attention disparity. So now you can kind of see how how the system is working a little bit. And and this this is a fine illustration, as you're talking right here, of, of the sort of... Yes, well, I want to say brilliant logic that's applied to the findings that, or the analysis um, from the data. For example, staying with the productivity line, um, this productivity prominence and the effects of academic environments, right? So just in the same topic that you were talking about here, we, we, we walked through a number of findings until we realized their full significance. And I'll do that in very brief form. We find that the training at a prestigious institute is not actually conferring advantage on subsequent productivity, but the prestige of the hiring institution does. And that would make the next finding or the next step in the logic almost seem sort of counterintuitive because we find out that the prestige of an individual's doctorate drives the prestige of their initial faculty appointment. Ah, so there's a finer distinction there. And to wrap it all up, the prestige of that appointment drives the early career productivity. So, I mean, we're dealing with fine variables that we understand better and better and can lock up into a more convincing and unbiased sort of logic. Yeah, in some ways, it almost sounds tautological, right? That, that the prestige of where you get your PhD drives where you get a job, the prestige of where you get a job. And the prestige of where you get a job drives your productivity as an early career researcher. And, you know, before we started digging into this idea, um, the sort of the conventional wisdom was that the, your PhD pedigree drove your, your productivity, that, that just the best people, the most talented productive people go to the elite places and therefore, like, that's why they're so productive. But they also tend to get jobs at the elite places. And so it, it wasn't clear what the real causal relationship was. Was it having an elite pedigree where you get your PhD that drives your productivity or was it where you work that drive your productivity? And there was a wonderful paper from several decades ago using a small scale data set um, that, that offered a hint, which is they looked at people who changed careers in the middle of their faculty job. This is based in the US as many of these studies are since it's a big ecosystem here. Um, and, uh, and this study found that uh, people who move from one university to another 
if they move up in the prestige hierarchy, then they become more productive after the move. And so that's a hint that there's something about the environment that's driving it. But their analysis wasn't causal because, of course, who gets the opportunity to move to a higher prestige university? It could be people who are already sort of inherently very productive. So we, we pivoted and we looked at instead the, the initial placements. We used faculty hiring as a sort of a, a pseudo natural experiment. Um, and by using a matching technique, we created a pair of digital twins, um, two individuals who had worked in a similar subfield, who had similar productivity prior to their, their beginning their faculty job, who both did a postdoc or both didn't do a postdoc, same gender, um, from a similar pedigree in terms of their PhD. So maybe one was from Yale and one was from Princeton. And then we looked at downstream um, their productivity as a function of whether they placed into a more or less prestigious university. And um, so because we matched these twins, these virtual twins, prior to placement on productivity and other characteristics, they look exactly the same before the treatment of where they get a job. And then when we look at the productivity after the placement, lo and behold, we find that the one at the more prestigious institution uh, writes a lot more papers than the one at the less prestigious institution. Now, this is um, not a, 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 a sort of airtight causal relationship, but it is very suggestive. Um, there are a number of factors that, of course, we couldn't control for, how they did in their interview, whether or not they had you know, grant proposal ideas already, whether they worked in a hot area like deep learning or something like that. Um, and so while we couldn't control for those, given the controls that we did have, um, it's very suggestive that prestige itself, that the environment that you work in is what drives your productivity. And on that same paper, I, I'm sure this is going to be very interesting to any listener out there who is a scientist and is thinking, okay, so what is it about my surroundings, essentially, that is uh, affecting my productivity in that same paper? We have here in, in figure four, okay, I've, I've, I've gone completely over to visuals. It doesn't matter, though, <laughs> but I'm not going to describe what I see there. It is another fine example, though, of, of, of good visualization, but I'm actually interested in, in a number of these particular factors, and I'd, I'd love to hear some of your feedback on that. I mean, we... I'm just going to pick out randomly a couple of the factors that contribute to a working environment. And then the working environment, as you find in that study, is contributory to to productivity. So there's the prestige, which you've certainly been talking about. There's department size. There's administrative or support staff. There's even things all the way down the line, like offering parental leave or average salaries and so on. Um, when you think back to that study and, and, and you sort of line up some of these working environment uh, factors, which are ones that you would like to, let's say, explore further and see how much and which impact do they actually have? Well, so that part of the paper was a fishing expedition. Um, we, in the paper, we say explicitly, like, we're not trying to make causal claims here about these different environmental factors um, because we don't have the data to support that kind of a claim. But we do want to know what correlates um, because surely there are, it's easy to identify hypotheses for what kind of environmental attributes should increase or decrease the productivity of the researchers. Once you know that it's something about the environment, then it's, you can enumerate some hypotheses. And um, the one that always comes up in, in presentations of this work is teaching. Like, surely teaching must be a huge factor. You know, like if you teach less, then you have more time to write papers. And um, we certainly thought that that was going to be the case too, even in the correlation analysis. And the analysis uh, showed no effect 
for teaching. <laughs> and that was a real head scratcher. Um, and what we came to realize is that there's just not enough variance in the, the variable that we had for teaching, which was some sort of teaching load, like number of courses you teach in a year. It's either one, two, or three, essentially. And that's not enough variance to explain um, a factor of three difference in productivity between the, the most productive environments and the least productive environments. Um, and in addition, you know, thinking more about this particular variable, we realized that, that it's not really giving you the information that you want. So even though it's some sort of course measure of, of how little time you might have to do research, you know, a large undergraduate course with 400 students and an army of TAs is a very different count of teaching than teaching a graduate seminar with, you know, 12 students in your research area. Um, and so the variable itself isn't really a, a good variable. We'd want to have a different measure of how much time faculty are investing in teaching in order to really tease that one apart. But some of the other variables that, that did seem to make sense that would be interesting to dig into, one of them was the size of the undergraduate program, that essentially the departments that have um, larger undergraduate populations, the productivity is lower for those faculty. And it's easy to imagine a mechanism there, which is if you have to teach a bunch of 400 level, 400 person classes, that's so much time spent sort of shaping and, and educating these young minds, teaching them the material in the class, that it does take time away from writing your own research. Um, of course, we also found that there was a big boost for having a lot of research faculty. So these are the soft money faculty I mentioned earlier um, uh, today, uh, the ones whose job is not teaching, but only doing research. And so the more of those you have in the department, the more the productivity in the department is, is higher. Uh, and so there, there are these interesting questions, but the one that we were most interested in was the labor question. And so we wrote a whole other paper just trying to examine like how much of the productivity boost in the environment that we observe is coming from just having more funded graduate students in the labs writing papers. And we found that it's a huge effect. Yeah, you summarize that quite nicely in a diagram of causal arguments um, in, in that paper, the labor advantages uh, paper, where we just sketching it out. You, you've done it once for us, but maybe this will also uh, spark an interesting comment of your own on, on the paper, um, because this nicely wraps up our, our, our look at productivity, and we can turn over to the ideas and hiring connection. But there you sort of sketch out for us this idea that moving from prestige, the greater available funding starts to free up for you at elite institutes, and that strives as you... Uh, make apparent here and in the other section, larger faculty group sizes, predicting group productivity, which is quite intuitive. And then the increased group productivity can explain most of the prestige productivity effect in disciplines, especially disciplines that have these collaboration norms, which is so many disciplines nowadays. Um, so with that sort of sketch of the paper, is there anything else that you would like to sort of add to what you what you really appreciated then out there from that? Well, the, the, the idea that the elite universities dominate the scientific discourse in large part because they produce such a disproportionate uh, share of scientific contributions of the papers and the ideas, um, that's something that I think many people feel, especially uh, early career researchers, that like how, just how can you compete with 
someone like George Church, who has 100 postdocs, I don't know that number for sure, but he has a very, very large research group um, when you're so early in your career. And, and you know, identifying a, a good place where you can be productive, where you have the right kind of resources, you know, enough students of the right kind, you know, have the right background for your kind of work. That's actually a really critical strategic decision for early career scientists to make. And so hopefully some of these insights um, can be viewed as, as useful and positive kinds of things to help early career scientists make better decisions about where can they, um, uh, you know, try to get to in order to be the most productive for themselves. And it's not that surprising that the elite places are, are such rich environments um, for producing new science. In the ecosystem metaphor, you know, you can, you can easily, you know, connect that metaphor with the idea that there are like rich biomes and, and nutrient poor biomes. And, you know, the productivity in the Amazon rainforest is enormous in terms of biomass, in part because it's such a rich biome. And uh, in a desert, you know, it's, it's much less. There's still life in both places, but it's different. And there's just sort of more growth that happens where there's a lot of resources. And that analogy works quite well with science as well. Um, but at the same time, there are lots of, of negatives that come from being at the elite places too. And these we have not studied, but they're sort of well known in the community. The idea of, you know, how, how the high pressure um, of, of being in one of those places, the, the pressure to, to raise the money to, for a big group. Um, there's sort of a norm uh, at Harvard and MIT that you have to have an army of graduate students and postdocs. And if you don't, then, you know, you're not keeping up with your, your colleagues. And so I think it, one of the insights that comes out of it is that, like, yes, there are these sort of mechanical effects for productivity. And yes, there's a huge prestige bias in the system. But at the same time, you know, great work still will rise to the top. It may have a slightly harder time rising to the top if it's being written at a place that isn't, you know, doesn't have the name, uh, the prestige uh, for the name. But nevertheless, you're going to be a lot happier writing and doing your research at an environment that that is supportive for you in the way that you do science. And that may or may not be one of these elite places. So some of that is not in the paper. Um, but I think when I think about the takeaways for myself, um, I, I try to view this as not just a, 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 a negative understanding that it's all about labor and all about prestige, but in, instead that um, you should recognize that this is the way the system works and that you can still find a way of being productive and enjoying the job um, in spite of just knowing this, because now you know how the ecosystem is structured. So I would say that leads quite naturally into the second line of research that we wanted to touch upon, even if uh, briefly, uh, about hiring and the spread of ideas. Could you perhaps give us a brief overview of the work that you've done in that re in that regard? Yeah, so finding that place where you can be a researcher and be productive, um, the, the ecosystem <clears throat> has a certain way of working. And we um, are the first sort of line of research in this area that my group got into was indeed looking at faculty hiring and, and, and specifically who hires whose graduates as faculty and using data on computer science and business and history. And then actually just this past year, we used a, a massive data set in the U.S. that covered essentially all academic fields at all PhD granting universities. Um, we looked at these networks of, of who hires whose graduates as faculty. And 
um, quantifying the shape of that sort of linear hierarchy using network science techniques um, reveals a, a, a stark hierarchy that it's, it's very steep that the most elite universities uh, train a huge fraction of the researchers that um, go on to have permanent positions in, in the US. And the good old 80-20 rule appeared again, essentially on average across every field of study in which 80% of faculty are trained at 20% of institutions. And that's just shocking. It, it, shocking in, in, to hear those words and to see those numbers, but very unsurprising when you, you know, go out and talk to academics or you listen to introductions um, of speakers at, at seminars and so on. Like they're all from, you know, the same 20 universities. And, and so the dominance of these universities in the faculty hiring network is really apparent. And um, since we've looked at, at those, uh, those patterns very carefully, we wanted to understand something about the consequences, about what, what happens as a result of this steep hierarchy. Because the hierarchy is so steep, it, it seems unbelievable that it would be purely based on, on merit alone, that the graduates from MIT are you know, five or 10 times more useful for the scientific endeavor than graduates from you know, Mississippi State University um, in terms of PhDs. And, and so we wanted to understand how does the flow of ideas respond to faculty hiring? And it comes from a very simple observation, which is that when you're trained uh, doing your PhD, you, you work on a specific set of ideas. And when you get hired somewhere else, you carry those ideas with you from where you train to where you work. And if there's a new idea that's being worked on by you and your advisor, for instance, um, and you take it to a new university, then, then you know, you're propagating that information, that idea throughout the system. And uh, so, you know, taking that idea writ large, the, the faculty hiring network and the disparities um, in terms of whose who's graduates um, tend to get jobs in different places, uh, it drives the spread of scientific ideas as well. And so the, the analysis really highlights the sort of core periphery like structure in the faculty hiring network that underlies the academic ecosystem in which the dense core of elite universities, they're the most productive, they get the most attention for their research, they also train the most new faculty. Those faculty then take the ideas that are being worked on at the elite places to the periphery, um, the rest of the, the system um, that doesn't produce as many new faculty. And so this could be a good thing or a bad thing. And, and in the Q&A after presentations on this topic, I often like to tease the audience with that specific question, like, can you think of some some good things about having such a such a, a concentration of influence at a small number of universities? Um, because it's easy to think of the bad part, like you know the demographic diversity of Harvard's um, computer science graduate program kind of drives the demographic diversity of the entire system for computer science because you can't hire people who um, who, who are getting PhDs, and if everyone wants to hire Harvard PhDs. Uh, then you know you're stuck with whatever gender and racial diversity that they have admitted into their program. Um, so, so that's an easy sort of negative aspect. But the positive aspect, it, it's not clear. And so I think this is an interesting question that I would love to see more work done on to understand whether or not there are, are benefits for the scientific ecosystem for having this sort of skewed um, influence distribution inside as a result of the faculty hiring network. I like that it starts with a simple observation 
and yet the complexity grows from there. <laughs> it reminds me of work in uh, dialectology where for years and years, things called isoglosses were drawn on maps. So basically divisions between the way one word was sounded and another word was sounded until sometime around the 1960s or 70s at the very latest in the 1980s, people realized, oh, well, dialects are spoken by people and it's the people that carry the way that these words sound into different places. So th- this, this is kind of parallel to that idea that you began with that well yeah that phd idea i had <laughs> i bring with me right that's right that's right yeah i think that in, in the grand scheme of the science of science I, I would really love to see the field focus more on on two sort of units of analysis um and they are people and ideas because in some way like that's all that matters right the the people are the ones who come up with the, come up with the ideas ideas inspire people to work on other ideas the people are the ones who, who have a career in science. It, it matters which people are in the room making discoveries to some degree, which ideas come out depends on that. Like people and ideas are the fundamental units of science and the science of science should really focus on those. But it's hard because how do you measure an idea? Like, I, you know, we, we take a class on general relativity and we learn about the idea of general relativity and it's very complicated and so on. And and you can look in the literature and you can read a bunch of papers about general relativity. And a human can understand that. You know, we can synthesize that information and see, ah, this is how the idea sort of traces along, you know, 10 years of, of work in this area and how it's evolved and so on. But our computational techniques are not up to that level yet. And so much of the science of science is about trying to figure out how do we take what we as scientists do in our heads and translate that into an algorithm and then combine that with massive amounts of data in order to get at the causality so that we're not just in our heads, we're actually looking at the whole system. And that's really actually hard to do well. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's what impresses me about the science of science is how often it's done actually even at the current state of the art quite well. But you're right. I mean, how do you measure an idea and how do you quantify it or qualify it? And, and the same with people, really. But what I really like is, and, and, and again, back to my core audience of early career researchers, is that the science of science recognizes that at least half of what's done, probably even more, because it's hard to separate people from ideas, is in the social aspect of science. Whereas I think very many people entering science from high school on up through college and so on are entirely focused on some sort of objective knowledge out there. That's right. And it, it that that sort of misunderstanding of, of how science works is our own fault, really, of course. Um, but it comes from the way we teach science, especially at the grade school level. We teach it as a collection of, of facts, which are independent of the people who discovered them. And we are convinced, you know, we tell each other these meritocratic ideals, and they're good ideals, but we don't live in a meritocracy. We're still trying to achieve a more meritocratic system. And once you once you realize the way that the social biases in society and in the structure of academia and the scientific careers and so on, and the details of doing the work, once you understand that that really restricts and constrains and redirects what discoveries get made, then you can no longer separate. You can no longer see ideas as being independent entirely of the people. And yet there is something that is independent. You know, once we make a discovery, discovering general relativity, that then has a power that feels like it's independent of the people. And yet, when you dig down, you go deeper, you understand more. When you dig down a little bit deeper into the general relativity aspect of it, you realize that that if you just read the papers, 
you won't understand general relativity. Like the information is there, but the ability to understand that information the way humans do relies on social behavior, social interactions. And that's why training to get a, you know, become a scientist is a, is an apprentice type system. You have to train under somebody who will teach you like how to think like a scientist. You, you can't get that just from reading the papers. And so in some ways, to come back to the early career aspect of it, the, 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 you know, having good ideas in the end is the most important part. And you can go a long way uh, in terms of surviving in the ecosystem on the basis of having really good ideas. And those good ideas can help you get to a good resource-rich environment. They can help you cultivate a rich, productive collaboration network that will allow you to be successful over time. Um, there's another paper we didn't talk about that I wrote looking at the composition and size of collaboration networks and how once you control for differences, for instance, between men and women in the way they construct and maintain these different kinds of collaboration networks, uh, productivity differences and impact differences essentially go away, which is kind of fascinating. That that the social network that underlies science ends up being the thing that creates many of the disparities that we superficially see in the system. Well, thank you very much for that, Aaron. That is Aaron Clausette, Professor of Computer Science at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And this is goodbye from me to Aaron. Goodbye. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.